Good morning, church. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Mark, and uh, it's my privilege to fill this pulpit on most Sundays. And if you're visiting and have never received one of the devotionals that I've written, I've written two yearly devotionals, and um, I wrote them for visitors of our church to give them to the visitors. And uh, they're available back here at uh, the information desk over here on uh, my left, your right. And so feel free to take one of those as you leave. Appreciate you being here uh, today. Um, we're in a series of messages on the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a rather difficult book, a rather odd book. There's things in Ecclesiastes that you don't find in other places. And Solomon, which is presumed writer of Ecclesiastes, which pretty much everyone agrees with that, search for purpose and significance and meaning and happiness in life in all kinds of different ways. Bible says he was the richest man who ever lived up to that point, so he had the funds uh, able to do that, and uh, so he searched for happiness, meaning, significance, purpose, in a lot of different things. He searched for it in pleasure, he searched for it in education, he searched for it in his wealth by building great projects and having great achievements, he searched for it in education, and found that he could not find meaning and happiness in all of those things. And so if you want to wrap up the book of Ecclesiastes, I find no better way to do that than uh, Dr. Dennis Kinlaw did when I had him at Asbury Seminary when he said, if you miss the center, and center is a capital C there, when you miss the center, we will live our life for the margins. The margins is pleasure, the margins is wealth, the margins is success, the margins is great achievements, nothing wrong with all of those things. They just cannot carry the weight of being the center. If you put them at the center of your life, they will collapse because they're not built to carry the weight. So I'm not preaching against pleasure. I'm not preaching against achievements. I'm not preaching against success and wealth and all that kind of stuff. And, and Solomon doesn't either. He just says, don't make them the center. And if you miss the center, we'll live our life for the margins. And so he wraps up the book of Ecclesiastes in the second to last verse in the whole book of Ecclesiastes, 12, 13 of Ecclesiastes. He says it all boils down basically to this. Um, after all has been heard, and here's the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So after he searches for happiness and significance and purpose and meaning in life, he comes down to basically, he says, here's what I've been able to find out. You need to fear God, keep all his commandments, because that's the duty of all men. And so basically what he's meaning there is keep God at the center, is keep God at the center of your life. He can handle the weight of being the center of your purpose and the center of your significance and the center of your meaning and the, the center of your happiness. He can handle that weight. All these other things can't. Jesus came along, and I don't know if he had the book Ecclesiastes in his mind or not, but Jesus came along and simply said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things on the margins. Now, he didn't say on the margins, obviously. But then all of these things will be added to you as well. When I talk about, when I talk about the center, I think a lot about the events of the last few days. Pardon me just for a second. Because the events of the last few days... Um, we, uh, with the Roe v. Wade thing coming down, and obviously pastors don't have any courage if they 
won't address the elephant in the room today. And, and so I feel like I need, I need to spend just a couple minutes here before we transition back. And um, at, at the center of this whole Roe v. Wade thing needs to be God. And as I look at both, si- both sides of this, I don't see them having God at the center. And here's what I mean by that. On the pro-choice side, the woman is at the center because they have settled on the argument that it's a woman's body and uh, it's, uh, she has bodily autonomy and no one can tell her what to do with her own body. And that's what they've settled as their big arguing point there. And said basic, So basically they have at the center of this whole argument, they have the female. And, and I get that and I think they've probably chosen the best tack to take when arguing the pro-choice side of this. Now the pro-life side has put the baby at the middle and said that this all thing boils down to if this clump of cells or this fetus or whatever that you want to call this is this a baby or not is this a human life or not that's where the pro-choice side has decided to live or pro-life side has decided to live or die on and I that is correct that is that that is the center of uh, the argument in one way but so they have the baby at the pro-life side has a baby in the center, and, and the other side has uh, the uh, woman at the center, and I think both of those are wrong. Now, I know this will push some of you out of your comfort zone because it seems very right and very moral to have the baby at the, at the center. I get that. I get that. But God's got to be at the center of this. And when God is at the center of this argument, we will approach this as Christians. Now, I'm not talking about anyone who's not a Christian. They'll approach it any way they want to approach it. But we will approach it with God at the center. And and with God at the center, it means we have to approach it with grace and truth. Um, Jesus came into this world full of grace and full of truth, John 1.14. So as we approach this issue, as we approach any other issue, we have to approach it with grace and truth. So... The, the pro-life side, if they're taking victory laps and uh, really making a big deal and almost being arrogant in our win here, I'm just not sure that's a gracious way to be able to accept that. I don't see Jesus, if he was walking the face of this earth, I don't see Jesus taking that tact in all of this. I see Jesus uh, being able to deal with this with much grace as long as well as much truth I, I can remember when Osama bin Laden was killed I can remember that was I was been here a couple of years I don't remember back in history when that was but I remember us having a staff meeting over here in room 221 and and you know Osama bin Laden was killed and people were uh, uh, people were celebrating in the Times Square that Osama bin Laden was killed and I I just couldn't do that I mean, that didn't seem Christian to me. I, I didn't think Jesus would be jumping up and down that Osama bin Laden was dead. Now, if I had been in Washington and had to make that decision, I probably I think I would have made the same decision as to, to take him out. But it's not a reason for rejoicing. We handle that with grace. We're Christians in, in all things that we do. And as gracious Christians, we have God at the center of this and every single activity we have. And with God at the center, we come about this 
with grace and truth. And I've seen some pro-life side running victory laps on this, and I'm just not sure that's the way to receive this. I was taught, this is not even a Christian thing, but I was taught as a high school and college athlete to be a good sportsman. <laughs> not to stick another team's face when we got the win. That's not even a Christian perspective, and how much more so us who claim the name of Christ would, in, in that analogy, be good sportsmen, be gracious in this. I also think there's a truth part of this that has to be told, and we have to speak to the truth part of this. Part of the truth part of this, friends, is this was a constitutional decision. Uh, this uh, emotion has gotten involved in this, but this decision wasn't uh, uh, anti-abortion or pro-abortion decision. It was simply a decision that the states need to make the decision. That was a decision. You could be I, now this wasn't the case, but you could be pro-choice and believe that the states ought to make the decision. It, it, this this was a constitutional issue here. And, and, and many people, I, and, and I wasn't, obviously in 73, I wasn't old enough to think good on all this on the first Roe v. Wade, but it's since I've read there, there are a lot of people, even, even on both sides of the issue, really doubted whether this was a federal decision or not. Can I tell you on the truth side of this issue? I'm not sure this is going to decrease abortions. There's still going to be 24 states, at least, that will allow abortions. You know what this is going to do? This will make abortion not as convenient. And that's probably an okay thing. The abortion won't be as convenient. You'll have to drive three to five hours to get your abortion now. That's what it'll do. Ohio will be one of those swing states. And, and uh, whether, what, what, I don't know what direction Ohio will go, but it's not, Ohio won't be like New York, which will have abortions full-fledged whenever you want to get one. Okay, Ohio will, will battle that issue out and it'll be somewhere in between. But if you live in Ohio and want to have abortion, the only thing you have to do is drive to Illinois. Five hours. I don't see what all the ruckus is about, to be quite honest with you. Whether the ruckus comes on the pro-choice side or on the pro-life side. Because if a woman wants an abortion, it seems like she'd drive five hours to get one. Uh, so I don't think that the battle for abortion is, is over in any ways, and we're going to certainly see that as it goes back to the states, and we're going to see some very fierce, very, very difficult social times as it all goes back to the state. But I think that's the truth of this whole thing. Basically what it's done is it's made, you can't just, if you live in Ohio, you can't just drive to Dayton or Cincinnati to get an abortion now. You, you may have to drive to Chicago. Or you may have to drive seven hours to New York State. Or depending on where Virginia goes, you may have to drive to Virginia. That's, it seems like that's what's done to me. Because there will be, most people think, at least 24 states that will be whole hog on abortion. If you live anywhere north of New York, Delaware, all the way up to New England states, all of those states will allow abortion and you won't have to do anything different than you've ever done so I think it's important that 
that we deal with this with grace and truth. Also, I want you to know this. We hear a lot of people now saying, well, what about rape and incest? What about rape and incest? Be careful when you hear that. That's an emotional thing. And, and I, I have conflicting ideas on rape and incest. And what I would feel on rape and incest may not be what you would feel on rape and incest. And that's an emotional issue right there. But don't let the, the, the pro-choice side create that smokescreen for you because it's not about rape and incest. Because if all of a sudden the pro-life side says, okay, we'll allow abortion for rape and incest, are you satisfied? They won't be satisfied with that. <laughs> That's just a smokescreen to appeal to emotion. Because that is a difficult part of abortion, rape and incest. I mean, you, you can just imagine your daughter. But even if we would say, okay, we'll give you rape and incest. But all other abortions go, that, that doesn't satisfy them. So that, they're just trying to appeal to your emotions on that. And don't let that part of the argument bother you greatly. Um, my big deal on abortion is probably even bigger. It's not as much as whether that's a, a beating heart or not, which it seems like science says it is from six to nine weeks. It seems like that's a beating heart, whether you call that a whether you call that a, a product of conception, some people call it a POC, a product of conception or a clump of cells or a fetus. I don't think that's really the issue, even though that's, that's a part of it. I, I just think there's a natural law that God has put into s this world for human beings, Christian or non, that you reap what you sow. And there are consequences for your behavior. And you just can't wipe them out. And that's... It seems like the abortion, pro-abortion folks want their cake and eat it too. They want to have sex anytime they want to, even unprotected sex, but they want to rule out the consequences from that. And the amount of abortions that come from people that their birth control didn't work are very slim. It happens, but it's very slim. As is rape and incest, 1%. God, there's a, there's a law God has put into this world that says there are consequences for your actions. You know what, you know what Levi said last night? I was talking to Levi about it. And Levi basically said, I don't get it. I mean, if, if, if you're going to have sex, you've you got to take what comes along with that. <laughs> but you can't say that in 2000. You, you can't say that um, sex outside of marriage is a sin, which it is, by the way. And not only should I look at the young people, I should look at everybody when I say that. And it's just a, a smokescreen and try to cover up the consequences of sin, which I just don't think God, I don't think we can do. It's just sin. And we've had X amount of abortions since 1972 because of sin. Well, not all, because 14%, New York Times tells me this this morning, that 14% that of abortions come from married women. Only 14%. There's a grace side of this that we should be... Um, awfully aware of but there's a true side of this as well 
And we should be loving people, but uh, loving people means speaking the truth, but it means speaking it in love. The grace side of this as well, and I'll finish with this, but the grace side of this, I, I would be shocked if I'm not talking to someone right now or someone listening on the Internet. I'd be shocked if I'm not talking with a female that's, paid, that's had an abortion or a male that's paid for it. I'd be shocked. And we need to proclaim there is forgiveness. Now, the world doesn't want to hear that because it's not a sin to begin with, but in the world's eyes. But the grace part of that is you are... There's forgiveness for that. And I got a little 17-year-old girl. She may be 16. I don't know. At Kinsey. She's delivering today. You know, part of me is sad because the cycle in her family just continues. But part of me wants to say she, she took the baby to term. She had the baby. And I, I, fully, I fully get the inconvenience for a woman who is going to carry the baby to term, even if they're going to give the baby up for adoption. I fully get that. I, I fully get that. And I, I, I guess, no, I guess I can't fully get it because I'm, I'm a guy. <laughs> I can't fully get that. I can appreciate it. But... There's a truth side of this, and there's a grace side of this, and we as Christians have to be full of both of those things as Jesus was. And I think that Jesus would be if he was here and trying to deal with all of these matters. There's a lot of weirdness that's happening and that will continue to happen. I, I think as these states battle this out, we're going to see societal issues like we've never seen them. We're going to see states... That we're just going to see stuff that we've never seen. We're going to hear language that we've never seen, hear, that we've never heard before. Like I heard somebody say, now we will have <laughs> government-mandated pregnancies. What government mandated those two to have sex? Government-mandated pregnancies. <laughs> Don't buy into all that language. Don't get desensitized to that's why that's why you hear that's why you hear stuff now called birthing people don't get desensitized to that uh, uh, there's there's a reason the language there's a, uh, decades ago we never heard the word gay but it was a better word and now everybody says it we're going to see some tough times and I just felt like I had to deal with it and I didn't answer all the questions and I, I don't have all the answers to all the questions but I, I know with God at the center we'll deal with it with grace and truth we should deal with it with grace and truth and I, I, just, I just cannot wave the victory banner because this is a tough, tough issue tough, tough issue I don't see Jesus waving the victory banner on this there's lots of battles or fights to go through on this whole thing let's be people of grace and truth let's be kind people fruits of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness and self-control let's do those things as 
we approach this issue. So I'll make an awkward transition now. But it's, it's not really awkward because last week I preached there's no difference between the sacred and the, the secular according to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's all under the umbrella of God's sovereignty and his lordship in our lives. So, so when I switch from talking about an issue like abortion to I switch to talking about an issue like money, it's, it feels awkward, but it's, there's no separation in those issues for us Christians. It's all in the umbrella of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so when Ecclesiastes talks about money, I, I have to deal with this topic unless I want to skip chapter 5. And I, I don't talk too much about money as your pastor because you're such great givers. And I'm afraid if I talk a lot about money or preach a lot about money, I'll mess it all up. So I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, I preach very little about money. But I just feel like I, I'm come to chapter 5 here and I can't, I mean, I, I ain't going to skip it. I mean, it's just, it's just right here. And in, and in chapter 5, he starts talking a lot about money as, as a place to, to find your happiness and your contentment. A, a, a place to be at the center, a place to find your fulfillment, and a place to find your um, significance in life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, Solomon writes, Whoever loves money never has enough. He doesn't put money down. But just like Jesus said, Jesus said, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It didn't say money's the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's how you deal with money. Money is an amoral issue. That piece of paper that's money is amoral. We use it in certain ways that give it morality or not, that make it sinful or not. There's no, there's no morality in that piece of paper that's a $5 bill. It's what we do with that $5 bill. And Solomon says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And Solomon repeats several things that he just sees. It's just meaningless. Going for all money all the time, it's just meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. And so I've come up with this little, little saying that, that, that helps me understand and helps me remember a little bit that says, if we have money at the center then our yearning power, that means how much we yearn for money, will always be greater than our earning power. Because <laughs> Solomon says you never have enough of it. If, if that's at the center, you'll never have enough of it. You'll never be satisfied in that. It, it can't, it's not built to handle the weight of being at the center. It'll collapse there, and it will, it will not bring you the satisfaction and happiness that you found out if you have money at the center our yearning power our yearning for that will always be greater than our earning power it's people Solomon says your satisfaction can't be in your money but he also says your significance in life can't be in money either Luke chapter 12 verse 15 Jesus said that that your life does not consist in an abundance of your possessions your life does not exist in the abundance of your, or, or can I say the lack of abundance. Your life is not about whether you make a little bit of money or a lot of money or a, your middle income. Life is not about that. I like the way the message translation says, life is not defined by what you have, even if you have a lot. Life is not defined by that. And by life, they're not talking about the things of life, paying the mortgage payment, 
um, you know, paying the light bill, making a car payment, all that kind of stuff, or the things of life. That's not what they're talking about when they're talking about life. Jesus says, I have come that you would have life. Jesus is not saying, I have come that you would make the mortgage payment. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. I have come that you would be able to make uh, the car payment so you can have that car that you That's not what he's saying. He says, I've come that you would have something deeper than that, that you would have life. And this life is not defined by the abundance of what you have. Your significance in life cannot be, Ecclesiastes says, the Bible says as a whole, in money. Also, your security can't be. Your satisfaction can't be in money. Your significance can't be in money. But also, the Bible says your security can't be in money as well. 1 Timothy, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, command those who are rich. So uh, there were rich Christians that needed to be taught. So it's not like it's horrible to be rich. He didn't say command those who are rich to no longer be rich. He just says if, you, if you're rich, I command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. That's basically what I'm saying on the whole abortion issue. Don't be arrogant in our win. Don't be arrogant. And he says command the rich in this world not to be arrogant about their wealthy. Uh, status nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God put your security in God don't put it in money put your security in God who richly provides us everything for our enjoyment provides us everything for our enjoyment include currency so our security not to be found in money I heard someone say a long time ago that our self-worth and our net worth are not the same thing. Our net worth is not built to sustain the center. It's not built to do that. It'll collapse. It won't hold the center, the weight of something that is in the center of your life. I heard an old preacher one time says, your value is not in your valuables. Same thing. Your value is not in your valuables. Jesus talked to a uh, rich man one day, came to him and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, listed off some commandments. And the, the, the rich guy says, well, I've kept all these since I was a kid. And then Luke 18, 22, Jesus says this, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And does that mean all Christians, there's not a single Christian in this room. There's not a single Christian that's ever lived that has, that has sold everything and gave it to the poor. But he, Jesus put his finger on what that man's security and his significance was. And the man went away, sadly. <laughs> Money cannot give us satisfaction. Money cannot give us significance. Money cannot give us security in life. But you know one thing that money will 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 give us. Ecclesiastes writer said this, Solomon said this in 511. Ecclesiastes 511 said, the more wealth people have, the more friends they have to help them spend it. <laughs> you know, the more wealth you got, the more ways you got to spend it. <laughs> more expenses you have. I know, that, I know that to be true because I'm the pastor of this church, which if, if you looked at the ledger sheets of all the churches in the United States, 
we would be considered a wealthy church because of the amount of money that we have. And we as a board have dealt with the fact, should we as a church be accumulating this much money? This, it's not the job of a church to accumulate wealth. It's the job of the church, it seems like, to spend that on worthy causes. Now, you need, you need a nest egg, and, and you need it if you have a bad winter where you, you have six or seven days you've got to cancel church, and you need a nest egg, obviously. But because of your faithfulness and the good stewardship of the staff, we've got, we've got money in the bank. And you know what? We get lots of phone calls. Because we're a generous church, and it gets around this city that we're a generous church. And we get two or three phone calls a day of, can you help me, can you help me, can you help me, can you help me? And some of those we help, and most of those we don't. I'm just telling you, the more money you have, the more ways you've got to spend it. The more people that will call you and give you ways that you can spend it. There's a lot of things that money brings. Money brings worries. Ecclesiastes 5.12 <laughs> says, The sleep of the laborer is sweet. Christopher worked his first 40. He's, he's yawning right now, okay? But he, Christopher, Christopher worked his first 40-hour week this week as, as a laborer, as a landscaper in hot heat this week at Cedarville. And it says the sleep of the... And he was tired, man. The sleep of the laborer is sweet whether they eat a little or a lot but as for the rich their abundance permits them no sleep because they got lots of worries on 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 what am i going to do with it and i've got 40 people to keep the payroll going and with 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 more wealth comes much worry I'm, we're not putting it down we're just saying truth here the ecclesiastes says you know you got a lot of people that's going to help you spend it and then you you got a lot of worries because you have wealth Jesus said when you have wealth, you have you got more responsibility too because in Luke 16, 11, Jesus says if, if you've been trustworthy in handling worthy, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So th this world is something of a testing ground for all of us in wealth. And we think of wealth, we think of people who have lots of money, but all of us have a certain amount of wealth, whether it's a little bit of wealth or middle amount of wealth or a lot of wealth. And this is kind of, we, people that have more wealth seems to have more responsibility in Jesus' eyes. So with, with, with a lot of money comes a lot of friends that help you spend it. it, it with, comes worries, Ecclesiastes says. It also comes more responsibility as well. But there's some good things that money brings and Ecclesiastes talks about them too Ecclesiastes says if money is not at the center then I can really be appreciative for what we have if money's not at the center I can just be grateful I can just be thankful for what I have if money is at the center then I'm constantly worrying about it and constantly trying to figure out it can I can I make all the how can I make more of it but if my money's not at the center I can just thank you Jesus I don't deserve the blessings that you've given me and th that means whether you make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or whether you're Christopher and Levi making $13 an hour which sounds like a whole lot of money to me 
when I made $2.10 an hour at York Steakhouse busting tables. Thank you, Jesus. When, when money is not at the center, we can be appreciative of what we have. I'm not sure we are if it's, if it's, if it's the center, if it's what we're working for, it's the meaning, if it's purpose, significance, meaning, security in our lives. I'm not sure we appreciate it. We think about it all the time. We worry about it instead of just being appreciative of it. Ecclesiastes 5.19, Solomon says this about money. He says, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and ability to enjoy them, if money was bad, then you shouldn't be able to enjoy them. Money's not bad. Nobody's saying money's bad. It's what you do with money is the issue. So God gives us ability and gives us wealth and ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil. This is a great gift that God has given you if you can be happy and appreciate and be thankful for what you have. Even back in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, it, it alludes to this. Remember God, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's he who has given you the ability. Now, whenever we say, whenever we say wealth, we're just thinking, oh, those, you know, those people in the church that make a lot of money. But, you know, compare... A lot, I mean, I'm, I'm wealthy in the eyes of the world. You know, in the eyes of the world, I probably make more than 95% of the people in the world. Not in Ohio. I, I, I thought the other day, I said, man, my dad, my dad just wouldn't believe that I, you know, my dad was a meat cutter for Kroger's and made $20,000 a year. And I know times have changed and cost of living goes up, but I, I'm just appreciative. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God has allowed me to enjoy life. I'm thankful that God has given me a church where people are generous. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thankful. With, with, with money's not at the center, I can be appreciative of money. If it's not, and I can, I, can, I can just be grateful and thankful. It seems like a Christian thing to do. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 6, verse 9 says something else. Better what the eye sees than the roaming of the appetite. This too is, a meaningless, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What, what is it chasing after the wind? Um, uh, the roving of the appetite. It, it's, it's better to be thankful for what I have, for what I can see, than always looking for more. It's better to be able to, to sit on my deck and be thankful for our 1.7 acres than to say, well, that guy down there has got five acres. It, it's, just, it's just the roving of the appetite, the not being content, not being thankful and appreciative for what you have. That's... God wants us to deal, to have that type of attitude with our money. And this comes no surprise to anyone that has even this much of an understanding of the Bible. The Bible says, obviously, and Ecclesiastes does as well, that we're, to be appreciate, uh, that we're to be generous with what we have. And it says it in a different way. Ecclesiastes 11.1 1 says in kind of an odd way, it says, ship your grain across the sea, and after many days you will receive a return. If, if you give, Jesus said, It'll be given back. Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. 
Explain that to me, Mark. And I don't know if I can or not. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse I've already read to you, 1 Timothy 6, 17. And let me add a couple of verses to that this time. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command those, this would be those who are wealthy, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So he's saying all those people who got money, you, you, you know, you're not going to hell or anything, but you need to do good. You're rich in money. You need to be rich in good deeds. You need to be generous and willing to share. In this way, you will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. You will lay up treasure for yourself. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, you probably know where I'm going on this, but in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, okay? Because they're the moth and vermin, they'll destroy it, or somebody may break in and steal it. But lay up for yourself, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And one way we do that is by being generous people and not tooting our horn about our generosity not being arrogant, not taking a victory lap because of my generosity. Jesus watches. And if I toot my horn and I'm arrogant about it, then I have my reward on earth. And if you want a reward for it, would you rather the earth to reward you or would you rather God to reward you? So we basically said, be appreciative for your money, what you have, for your wealth, a little bit of wealth, middle amount, a lot of wealth. Be a, praise God for it. Be grateful for it. It's, it's him who's given you the ability to have it. And, and be generous with it. Be generous with it. From day one, when our kids had their first, your first job was at the pool, right? Was that your first real job? Levi, are you listening? Earth to Levi. It was basketball camp. All right, it was basketball camp for you. He helped me out at basketball camp once. And the very, from the very first paycheck, we sliced off the tithe. This, this needs to be taught. And what I haven't talked to him about now is he's, he's been tithing, and then he takes the other half, and he saves it. Half of the other half, he takes off 10%, and you got 90%, and he saves 45%, and he then takes 45% to do what he's want to. But what we got to talk with him now, that he's making 400 bucks a week, which sounds like a lot of money to me for a young kid, is not, is not only just generic saving, but saving for retirement. You know what would happen if... If I started saving for retirement at 19, I'd be on the beach today. 
I'd be preaching to the surfers out there, Brian. I mean... generous teach them teach them teach them to give and I'll, I'll i'll finish with this jesus says in luke 16 13 that you can't have two masters so we need to do godly things with our money and you can't have two people at the center you can't have you can't have two things at the center you just can't it's impossible no one has two things at the center either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other you can't serve both God and money. So somebody came along, and I don't know who originally said this, and said, money is a great servant, but a lousy master. Money is a great servant. And that's what money should be. Money should be a tool for us. It's a great servant, but it's a lousy master. So I'm finishing this morning with just saying, if God is at the center... If God is at the center, money is a great servant. Just a great servant for you. So Ecclesiastes, and this, is, this wasn't preaching as much as it was a Bible study about what Ecclesiastes says about money. It says you're not gonna, it's not going to give you satisfaction. It's not going to give you significance. It's not going to give you security. It's going to give you more ways to spend it. You find out you've got a lot of friends. It's going to give you worries. Because you, you got with that comes responsibilities, and it's going to give you more responsibility in God's eyes to be able to use that in a proper way. But as Christians, how should we deal with money? Ecclesiastes says we should be appreciative for what we have. We should praise God for what we have. We should be thankful for what we have. A little, a lot. We should be thankful people. And 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 if you don't have enough, go find you another job where you make more. They're out there. You may have to work harder or whatever. Be thankful that God has given you the ability to do that. Be, be appreciative for that. And be a generous person and also put God first with all of that. That's this. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, talked to us concerning money. And we transition to the table now. And it, again, it seems like an awkward transition because I haven't been talking about the death of Jesus. But the Christian, who is a Christian because of faith in what Jesus did for us, we reminded every time that the Lordship, when we come to this table, that Jesus gave all and all that we have and all that we do, secular or sacred, comes under the umbrella of his Lordship. Whether it's money or whether it's abortion issue. That seems like a really weird, weird transition. It doesn't seem awkward and smooth, but everything, things that seem, that seem to be moral issues like abortion or th things that the world may not look at as a moral issue like money, everything for the Christian is a sacred issue if God is at the center. If God is at the center. And so my challenge for you continues to be, continues to be, that when he is at the center of all that we say and all that we do and all the decisions that we make, 
everything else on the margins, then we can find some happiness and we, we can find some enjoyment. We can find some meaning in all of that. But everything around the margins is not strong enough to hold up the weight of being the center in your life. It'll collapse. Only God can bear that weight. Our servers are coming to the table. And we remember at this center issue, we remember to keep the, same, the main thing, the main thing. We are reminded uh, every single Sunday that the death of Jesus opens the door for God to be at the center of our life. Father, <clears throat> Father, I feel like I kind of rambled this morning and, and, and didn't have really one solid thing I wanted to get across, but Father, I pray that you could take this jumbling mess of Scripture that I gave today and somehow use it in our lives and, and, and somehow speak to us through all of this. Um, Father, every single person in this room understands this message about money with our head. We understand it with our head. But for me and a lot of us, it's a long road from our head to our heart and that we really live it out on a daily basis. Help us to live out what we know to be true. And that is... You're at the center, and money, and all the good things that money can bring are not at the center. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our tables are open, as are our altars.